Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Part 1, Improving Risk-Based Management Decisions in Follicular Lymphoma, is provided by Axis Medical Education and Q-Synthesis, and supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Our objectives are to um, utilize, help uh, the viewers utilize risk, risk stratification models and guideline recommendations to make appropriate risk management decisions for the initial treatment of follicular lymphoma. In the second part, we'll talk about relapse refractory follicular, uh, that's on a different day. And then look at available evidence regarding identifying patients who are at risk for early progression and, and treatment options that might reduce that risk. All right, so with that, we'll move into the uh, didactic section here. So we'll start with some background, overall uh, background on follicular lymphoma. Uh, this is the most common indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma and accounts for uh, anywhere between 15 and 20% of uh, NHL cases in the US. That ends up uh, working out to being about 13,000 new cases in the US each year the median age is 63. Um, the disease has a highly variable uh, behavior biologically. There's a range of, uh, of histologic uh, grading. You can see transformation from low grade into aggressive lymphomas like the diffuse large B cell lymphoma or even uh, double hit lymphoma. Um, and you can see a wide range of metabolic activity on PET. Um, and so with that variable biology, you see variable clinical behavior as well. And um, we'll talk about that as we uh, go through the, through the lecture, but you've got everything from watch and wait for many years to people who uh, urgently are in need of therapy. And then uh, there are a number of treatment options, um, both first line and in relapse. And they're listed here. I won't read them all now because we will go through them. At, um, different parts of both part one and part two, but just to give you sort of a little overview of what's coming, they're listed there. Thinking about presentation and pathology, uh, many patients are asymptomatic on presentation. They, they can have um, B symptoms or they can be symptomatic from splenomegaly. Uh, in some cases, we can see people presenting with cytopenias due to marrow infiltration. So um, it's really important to get a, a good tissue biopsy on the front end um, so that we can get be confident that it is in fact follicular lymphoma and then also get uh, accurate grading. Um, under the microscope, the pathologist will see uh, these, these follicles or follicularity, uh, which is where the name of lymphoma comes from, and in about 85% of FL cases, you will see this uh, translocation 1418, which puts the BCL2 gene downstream from immunoglobulin uh, heavy chain promoter, which really results in abnormal kind of uh, constitutive overexpression of BCL2. We can see histologic transformation occur, which uh, at about a rate of 2 to 3% per year. So that's always something that you want to keep in the back of your mind. They can be transformed at the time of diagnosis or really at any point um, downstream. So 
So uh, moving on to risk stratification scoring systems, uh, there are uh, several that we'll talk about here on the next couple slides. Um, but historically, if you look through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, the median survival of follicular lymphoma was in the 10-year range. And this was really despite um, trying many different types of conventional chemotherapy regimens, even upfront uh, stem cell transplant in some cases. And it's really not until the introduction of monoclonal antibodies, such as uh, you know, the anti-CD20 agents, rituximab, the radioimmunotherapy agents. Uh, now, more recently, we have venetuzumab. It's, it's with that introduction that you see a distinct change in the natural history uh, of follicular lymphoma. And so now we can tell patients who are newly diagnosed that the average survival for uh, follicular lymphoma patients is really uh, expected to be in the range of about 20 years, maybe longer, anticipating new treatments uh, that should be coming um, in the next few years. And But despite that, there are there's a subset of patients who have a poor outcome, and it's important to try to identify those patients. So we do have multiple risk tools, uh, risk assessment tools that can help with that. And those are summarized on this slide. And so these are some of the, the more you know, uh, validated tools. So the, the, the FLIPI, here they have it listed as FLIPI-1, but really it's most commonly referred to as FLIPI. This was um, developed in the pre-rituximab era, but it does hold up in the rituximab era, and you can see the five clinical factors that are that go into that, age, Ann Arbor stage, hemoglobin, LDH, number of nodal sites, um, and then you, depending on how many points you have, you're low, intermediate, or high risk. There's a, a different form of the FLIPI called the FLIPI-2, which was developed in the rituximab era, and um, that uses different factors that are listed here. Um, it, so you still have age, you still have hemoglobin, but now instead of having um, to add up all the different nodal sites, which is a little bit cumbersome on FLIPI, you just take the longest diameter of the largest node. And if it's more than six centimeters, then you get a point for that. Beta-2 microglobulin, and then whether there's bone marrow involvement. And then again, add up the points as below. The, there's a clinical trial called the PRIMA trial. Uh, they have a um, risk assessment tool that came from that cohort of patients that really only looked at beta-2 and bone marrow involvement. And then you can come up with uh, three groups uh, on that basis. So looking at these in a little more detail, you've got the uh, FLIPI score, the five factors I mentioned. The readout on that study was um, survival, but, um, and if you look, I said it was in the pre-rituximab era, the original data set, but it's been validated in the rituximab era. So initially, uh, average survival was 10, 10 years. Um, back in that pre-rituximab era, but you can see that um, if they were low risk, they, they did better than average, so 71% were alive at um, 10 years. Off to the right here, we're looking at um, the performance of uh, the FLIPI score in, in patients who receive rituximab. So, so all the groups do better, but it is still um, a useful prognostic tool. And these are easy to generally easy to find factors in the patient's chart. Um, FLIPI 2, the readout was PFS. And again, uh, you know, we talked about the five factors and very uh, discriminated very well, though, between low, intermediate, um, 
and high risks with, with five-year PFS ranging from 19 to 80%. So, um, so if you're high on either of these scores, that would certainly identify a patient at um, higher risk uh, for a short first short remission with first-line therapy. Um, so the, the Prima PI talked about those the factors. The stratification here on the lower left shows. Um, that's right. I can use my pointer. Almost forgot about that. <laughs> so I think you can see my my mouse pointer here. So um, again, stratifies well between uh, low and high risk with a five-year PFS in the high-risk patients of only 37%. There's one other one called the M7 Flippy, which is really most practices um, are not using. This is, I would say, more of a research tool and may become something that's more commonly used. So you, you apply the Flippy score, and then there's a mutation status of seven genes listed here, which are probably most are which would be available on some of these um, gene uh, these mutation panels that people are sometimes sending on, on patients. So uh, if, if there are certain mutations present, then that adds into the, the weighting here. So um, so say like foundation heme panel, for example, you could get that information. So um, looking at these different stratification models, I would, um, this is really more just discussion points for me here to bring to the group, but we, I try to document in my practice the uh, Flippy uh, um, and or Flippy 2, so that I have that kind of in my assessment part, my, my overall summary part of, of the patient, so that we can kind of look when patients are asking you, how long do you think I'm going to stay in remission? What can I expect with this treatment? You know, and, and, and as you're thinking about what's my plan, you know, when this patient recurs, I think it's very helpful to have an idea of their high or low risk. And um, as far as the decision whether to treat or not, or which regimen to select, um, technically, we don't um, use that. There are a few trials that would use high flippy as a, a way to get a patient enrolled on the study. But in general clinical practice, it's really more symptoms and disease burden that we use as our initial decision to treat. But I would say many people do factor in Flippy, Flippy 2, um, especially in patients where you're kind of on the fence maybe about what, whether to treat or how intensive of treatment to give. So with that, let's uh, look at first-line therapy options. So these are some general considerations um, to take into account uh, when you're approaching first-line therapy. And I think that the, the what we call the GELF criteria, which uh, stands, it's the acronym for a French uh, lymphoma research group. Uh, these have been in use for, gosh, probably 20 years or more. And I think they still are very useful in clinical practice to classify patients as either low disease burden or high disease burden. And, and then I further kind of classify patients as either low disease burden, asymptomatic, low disease burden, symptomatic, and then high disease burden. So if you're if you have a low disease burden patient without symptoms, these are patients where there's very, I would say, robust uh, you know uh, precedent to to say that these patients can safely be observed at least as the initial strategy 
and um, it becomes apparent typically in that first year whether uh, continued observation is going to be um, a useful strategy. So these are the criteria in the box here. So any um, node greater than seven centimeters would classify as high disease burden. If there are three nodes that are bigger than three centimeters each, that would count. Any um, B symptoms, um, <clears throat> splenomegaly, any um, organ compression, so if there's uh, hydronephrosis, if there's um, uh, biliary or uh, bowel obstruction, any of those would count. Um, pleural effusions, pericardial effusion, uh, ascites, the, the, those would count. And then if they have circulating lymphoma cells, which is, is rare but not unheard of with follicular lymphoma, or a little more common is cytopenias, um, anemia, thrombocytopenia, uh, leukopenia that you think is related to the lymphoma. So any of those things would count. So I'm, when I see a new patient, I'm thinking, I'm looking for symptoms, I'm looking for just radiographic disease burden, and then laboratory abnormalities. And many patients actually don't have any of those, and so those are the patients you can uh, safely observe. Uh, there are some patients who are kind of in the, in the gray zone. Fatigue is a real tricky one, so uh, sometimes it's, it's a little hard to know for sure if the patient is entirely symptom-free. Um, so uh, low disease, so here we're, we're kind of classifying patients for first-line therapy. It's important to think about localized disease. It is a minority of patients, but those but they are out there, and there's a, kind of a long history of using um, involved field radiation therapy for these patients, and many of them will still be disease-free five to 10 years later. Uh, for those patients, I really try to go the extra mile to make sure that they're localized, so I would be sure to get a bone marrow biopsy and a PET scan, for example, on patients who are thought to have localized disease before committing them to radiation. Um, these low disease burden patients, really the decision in my mind typically is, are we gonna observe that patient or are we gonna give single agent rituximab? And uh, the resort study was one study that looked at different ways of dosing the single agent rituxan in that setting. And then in the high disease burden, which um, most of the remainder of our talk will focus on, it's really uh, historic for, for now, close to, I would say, 20 years, it's been rituxan chemotherapy combinations with the most common regimens being either um, uh, for many years, CVP, CHOP, and fludarabine, and then more recently, bendamustine plus rituximab was introduced and um, has become a very popular first-line regimen. Um, it's uh, been well established that um, adding rituximab to these uh, chemotherapy regimens has uh, not just PFS benefit, but survival benefit in several studies. So. Then later, the concept of maintenance rituximab came in, and more recently, we've got new anti-CD20s, uh, such as obinutuzumab, um, and then now even more recently, non-chemotherapy options, such as lenalidomide. So that's kind of an overview of what we're gonna cover here with first-line therapy for the remainder of the talk. So, um, so which treatment is appropriate really depends on the patient, and so we talked about the concept of disease burden, um, flippy score, those other risk assessment tools may factor in, in in cases where you're kind of on the fence. 
pace of disease is very important. So if the patient tells you they first felt this uh, lump in their neck um, three months ago and it was pea-sized and now it's golf ball-sized, this is probably someone you're, you're not going to be able to observe for very long. Age and comorbidities, of course, always important in any oncology setting uh, and potential toxicities. So, so I've got two different case vignettes here just to consider as we move forward. So patient one, 42-year-old, otherwise healthy woman, high flippy, high disease burden, symptomatic. So think about that as one uh, type of patient. Then you have another type of patient, 73-year-old man with comorbidities, COPD, CAD, high disease burden, but low flippy, uh, you know, has some non-bulky, but uh, has more than three nodes over three centimeters. And uh, uh, so two very different types of patients. And, you know, it's really more of just a question to get you thinking, how, how would you approach these two patients? Would you, would you use the same exact treatment? I would argue that uh, potentially we would not. And we'll come back to that later. Um, so looking at the NCCN guidelines, um, preferred regimens being um, bendamustine, uh, CHOP, or CVP as your chemo backbone, and then an anti-CD20 antibody, either um, obinutuzumab or rituximab. And then um, there's data for lenalidomide plus rituximab, um, which we will touch on as we go through. There are some other recommended regimens possible, such as lenalidomide with obinutuzumab or single-agent rituximab. Um, weekly times four, generally more for low tumor burden patients. When you're looking at elderly or frail patients, you could think, um, I have I have used single agent rituximab in high disease burden patients. Typically, those are old frail patients. Um, I can't say I've used clarambucil for, the, for probably the last eight or 10 years, but it is still out there. Um, and then, uh, Ibrutumumab toxicin is a radioimmunotherapy agent, which we generally use more in the relapsed refractory setting. But I guess one could consider that frontline for elderly. I'd say that's not real commonly done. So, so again, we have to look at many factors, age, comorbidity, and trying making sure not to burn bridges for later um, as well. So this is summarizing the, um, the first, there, there's four randomized trials that looked at um, adding rituximab to chemotherapy. This has sort of kind of become more of a historical footnote. I don't think too many people stress about whether to include an anti-CD20 in their first-line therapy, but just to kind of give people that, that background here that there were um, four different chemo backbones looked at, and then you've got your with rituxan and without, and you can see that in all cases the PFS was significantly better with the inclusion of rituximab. And then if you look at survival, um, three of them have the star here, meaning that they have even had survival benefits, which is really saying something for a first-line follicular lymphoma study where the bar is you know, already fairly high. Uh, and the one that did not show survival benefit, there was, um, there was in, in the high flippy patients. So, so I think this is very well established and uh, really not something that meant that we question too much. I'd like to introduce this concept of uh, POD24, so progression of disease tw uh, at, with, at 24 months. 
So within two years of initiating first-line therapy, there's been several studies now that have shown that those patients do worse. So even if they were thought to be relatively low risk at diagnosis, if they have a POD24 event, so say uh, they get bendamustine rituxan, they start maintenance rituximab, and uh, I don't know, six, eight months into maintenance, now they've uh, recurred or progressed. Okay, that's, that patient has now moved into a high-risk category, and we may need to rethink our strategy moving forward. So this has been initially looked, uh, identified in a retrospective um, uh, database that was a prospectively collected database, but it was not a trial, but was validated in uh, some other databases, German, the German Lymphoma Study Group and British Columbia Cancer Agency, and then also in uh, prospective trials uh, we have now seen that about 10 to 30 percent of patients will will have POD24, and it's being even looked at as a as an endpoint in some of these trials. Uh, and so, pooling uh, three different CLGBs or Alliance studies showed that POD24 was predictive of survival um, even after adjusting for the FLIPI score. So, at the moment, we do not have well-validated biomarkers that will help us predict who's going to have POD24, that, that is an area of research and would be very helpful if we could predict that on the front end. But looking at this box in the lower corner, just try to bear in mind, it's about 20% of patients will have POD24. And if they have that, their survival moving forward from the POD24 is only 50% uh, versus about 90% if they don't have POD24. Um, and if you look at flippy score, you can also get an idea of who has a, a higher probability of having POD24. Why, why am I uh, focusing on this? Well, one, because these are the patients who seem to do worse. And, uh, but secondly, we have uh, some data now. This is a retrospective data from the um, Center for International Bone, Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, a study that I was involved in where we compared uh, patients to the lymphocare study where the POD24 was initially reported, that's the blue curve, to patients that we pulled out of the transplant registry who also had POD24 and then who went on to have a autologous transplant within uh, one year of that POD24 event. So it's not a prospective randomized trial. I don't think we'll ever have a trial to test this question, but this is probably the best we're gonna have that would suggest that these patients uh, did better, about 13% higher survival at five years if they did get an autotransplant. So these are the patients we consider for autotransplant. It's sort of the bottom line. And I would encourage you, if you have a patient with POD24, to get them evaluated for possible stem cell transplant. So that's one important takeaway. The other one is if there's something we can do to prevent POD24, that will really get prevent the need for the patient to even really have to think about transplant. So this is, uh, I think, an important endpoint in that regard. So um, looking at different um, types of uh, chemotherapy backbones, we can see this uh, study who was comparing RCHOP to a fludarabine regimen to CVP. And another, uh, so this study basically said that RCHOP was favored over, so a little more active than CVP, Similar activity to fludarabine, but from a toxicity standpoint, um, performs better. We see a lot less T cell depletion and secondary malignancies, and it also helps maintain bone marrow reserve, whereas fludarabine 
is uh, less favored in all of those uh, in all of those ways. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Um, in the LymphoCare retrospective database, uh, they looked at um, also three different regimens: CVP, CHOP, and fludarabine, and adjusting for other variables. There was a trend towards better PFS and OS for our CHOP versus this is supposed to say our flu. Um, so for CHOP and fludarabine versus our CVP, uh, there was a little more toxicity and secondary malignancies again seen with fludarabine. So I would say this fludarabine has really kind of fallen out of favor um, as a treatment um, modality in, in follicular lymphoma. It's not that it's not active, it's just there's more toxicity and bridges can be burned with that regimen. Um, the STILL trial looked at bendamustine rituxan versus RCHOP. And um, when you look at time to next treatment um, or progression-free survival, um, it did look uh, BR performed uh, better. Did, did not see a difference in terms of overall survival because uh, the bar is already set fairly high in terms of uh, um, even RCHOP. But looking at, so this red line, this will show up in a few of the slides coming up here. This shows the outcome at two years. So you can see that uh, if you have a progression event prior to two years, then you have POD 24. So BR seemed to perform better in terms of uh, reducing the risk for um, POD 24. So that's the point there. It was instead of 35% went down to 25%. Um, the Bright study was another study that compared um, BR to RCHOP and then R. RCVP kind of lumped together. This was designed more as a non-inferiority trial using CR rate as the endpoint. And um, what they concluded here was that it was that BR was non-inferior. And if you compared it directly against the RCHOP subset, it seemed to be superior. Um, and then they reported a longer-term outcome in 2019 that showed a better PFS with uh, BR, I'm trying to show here, again, the POD 24 time point. And then, of course, there's less neuropathy, very little alopecia with BR, although slightly higher opportunistic infections and um, infusion reactions and some skin reactions that you have to watch for with uh, BR. The gel Prima, uh, or GILA, did the Prima study, which looked at maintenance rituximab versus observation following different chemos, most of which uh, patients got um, CHOP, all patients got rituximab, and then potentially rituximab maintenance, and what, what the bottom line was there was no difference in overall survival, but there was an improvement in three-year PFS, and you can see at the two-year mark, again, a reduction in POD24. Um, they just uh, came out with a long-term follow-up of this study uh, last year, and you can see that it, whether you're looking at PFS, uh, time to next cytotoxic treatment, time to next lymphoma treatment, uh, there were benefits in favor of maintenance, uh, overall survival, though still no, no benefit once you get years out. So, um, and this is again with CHOP-like chemotherapy backbone. We have extrapolated this uh, and kind of assumed this also applies after bendamustine rituximab, but um, we don't know that quite as clearly. There's a trial called the FIT trial, 
which instead of using random, instead of using um, maintenance, asked the question of, well, what about consolidation with radioimmunotherapy? And bottom line was that there was a PFS benefit, pretty substantial, but there were some problems with this trial, I would say, in that the control arm did much worse than you would expect. Um, and so I think this has a lot to do with the fact that patients um, did not get rituximab as part of their induction. So it's a little harder to know how to apply this. And I would say that radioimmunotherapy is, is being used uh, less for consolidation at this point. Um, and in the interest of time, I won't go through this SWOG study in much detail, but it was another study looking at consolidation with radioimmunotherapy that suggested some PFS benefit. This was now incorporating rituxan frontline. And so, I'm sorry, no difference in PFS benefit. So, and I think that's in part because they did incorporate rituxan at first line. So I tend not to use this for consolidation because I think when you're giving rituximab or abinutuzumab as part of your induction, um, you're seeing less benefit with the consolidation there. Um, and a, kind of a similar outcome seen here with this other SWOG study. Uh, so I think I'm going to skip past that in the interest of time right now. So the Gallium trial, this was um, a more recent study in which compared two different anti-CD20 antibodies. So rituximab versus obinutuzumab or gaziva. And, and centers could use um, different chemotherapy um, uh, backbones here. They had to choose one and go with that. And if you look, uh, and then everyone got maintenance. They either got rituximab or obinutuzumab. And so, so the curves are, the PFS curves are a lot higher because everyone's getting active therapy, including maintenance. And the question really is, do they do better if they get a benetuzumab? So again, no difference in survival, which is common now in frontline follicular lymphoma studies. But in terms of PFS, there was uh, at three years uh, a benefit, a 7% improvement in favor of obinutuzumab. And if you look at POD24, there actually was a um, uh, numerically a significant difference in favor of the obinutuzumab arm. I would mention, though, that uh, there are some toxicities during maintenance that are not unique to abinutuzumab, even rituximab. And if you really tease this data apart, it's these top two, the ones who got bendamustine. Whether they got rituximab or obinutuzumab, many of the infections and, and toxicities that we're seeing happen during maintenance. So I always, I have to sort of, every time we get a new nurse, I have to sort of train them that uh, if the patient calls and they're a year after chemo, but they're on maintenance um, and they have a cough, that this is not a problem to direct to primary care because they're, quote, not on chemo. These are patients, this, this is still our problem to deal with because we are creating this, this sort of immune suppressed state in these patients and we need to be aggressive. They can get things like CMV and pneumocystis. So it's just something to bear in mind. Um, and if you look at the uh, difference at um, at um, two years, or they're, they're focusing on the POD24 issue here, and that was um, lower, it looks like, um, PFS and progressive disease or death due to POD24 did seem to be lower. Uh, in favor of the obinutuzumab arms. So, so kind of um, throwing in a little plug for those patient vignettes here, I would say the, the younger, healthy patient I, who, who, for whom follicular lymphoma may actually be an issue in, 
terms of shortening their life expectancy, these are patients that I would consider um, obinutuzumab on the front end and for maintenance to try to reduce their risk of POD24. Um, the relevance trial is a very interesting study that tried to look at um, using a non-chemotherapy approach. And so this is uh, an R, R chemo is the control with maintenance versus uh, R squared. So lenalidomide rituximab with maintenance rituximab. And um, so the study designers went for superiority. What they really saw here was equivalence. So technically the study failed to meet its endpoint of superiority, but they, these curves look really identical. So in my mind, these are comparable regimens, but um, technically lenalidomide does not have FDA approval as a frontline therapy, although you saw it is listed as an option in NCCN. So for a patient who you think won't tolerate conventional chemotherapy, but has high disease burden, this might be something to uh, consider, although that would be considered off-label. Um, so strategies that we know will decrease POD24 in the rituximab era. So using um, CHOP versus CVP, bendamustine versus CHOP. Um, if we use uh, maintenance versus no maintenance, bendamustine was not used in that trial of no uh, obinutuzumab as opposed to rituximab. And, um, and I would say that the question is still kind of out there uh, whether radiomunotherapy maintenance, radiomunotherapy followed by maintenance rituximab makes a difference there. So, but the big question is if we can decrease POD24, will that ultimately improve survival? That we have not um, been able to prove that yet. And this may be confounded by the fact that we have a lot of good treatments in the relapse refractory setting. And of course, we'll get to that, those more important. Part two. So just kind of returning to those vignettes, which I already sort of touched on, I would argue that the younger, um, healthy patient, we want to really sort of do whatever we can to decrease their risk of POD24. So a patient like that, I would favor obinutuzumab bendamustine followed by maintenance. Whereas this patient two, this patient's got low risk um, follicular lymphoma and lots of comorbidities. Lymphoma is probably not the patient's biggest issue, so we don't want to go too heavy on the lymphoma therapy and create too much toxicity. So there I would favor um, either single agent rituximab uh, or maybe a bendamustine rituximab and then um, debate the, the risks and benefits of maintenance when the patient gets to that point. So I would approach those two patients differently. So our takeaways here. We have several risk stratification systems that can be useful. Treatment has definitely evolved a lot uh, over the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, POD24, I think, is an important endpoint and something to think about in uh, your, particularly your patients who could be transplant candidates down the line and, and for whom, um, you know, the, the younger, more healthy patients, we really want to try to reduce POD24. I mean, any, for everyone, if we can, but in particular, those younger patients. And then we have a number of first-line interventions, as I showed, that do appear to improve both PFS and uh, decrease POD24. Access Medical Education would like to thank our faculty for that excellent presentation and for their dedication to quality continuing professional development. And we thank each of you for your participation. Good day. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education and Q Synthesis. 
To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.